thank you so much for listening to Exactly with me, Florence Given. For the last three episodes, I've been talking to my guests Jamila Jamil, Sean Fay, and Deborah Francis White all about feminism. They've all had such incredible, inspiring, and at times hilarious perspectives on the topic, and have left them all feeling fired up, pissed off, confident, all of the feelings that you have when you talk about feminism and how shit the world is. But also it's kind of inspired me to leave the episode and take action, which is what I want to make people feel every single time that they listen to this show. I'm incredibly hopeful for the future and my mind has just been truly expanded by what my guests have had to say. I've loved talking about feminism with them all and in this episode, I can't wait to talk about it even more with you. Today, I have another incredibly exciting feminist guest joining me to help me answer your questions. The founder of the Free Periods Movement, Amica George. So this is the fourth and final episode in this mini-series on feminism. And as is now the tradition, on the fourth episode, I hand over the mic to you to ask the questions. And alongside my guest, we'll answer as many of them as we can. Amica George, my guest today, is the founder of the Free Periods Movement, a campaign she started when she was just 17 from her bedroom, which resulted in her persuading the UK government to provide free menstrual products in all English schools and colleges from January 2020. She's a fucking legend and is basically dripping in awards. Here's just a few she's won recently. Spotlight of the Year at Vogue 2021, a Goalkeepers Campaign Award by Bill and Melinda Gates, and she was listed by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential teenagers in the world. What a fucking lineup. She's so cool. I think she's cracking. I'm so glad to have her as a guest on the show today. And she's just published her first book, Make It Happen, How to Be an Activist. It was published last year and she's a really lovely person. So couldn't be in better company to answer these questions today. So, Amica, before we get stuck in today, I'm going to ask you my five quick fire questions. I ask all of my guests these, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, cool. Okay, sick. So the first question, what's one thing that sets your soul on fire? Sriracha chili sauce. Perfect answer. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. If you could wear one outfit for the rest of your life, a look that would define you forever, what would you wear? Um, Probably... My instinct is to say trackies, even though I don't know if that's how I want to be defined, but that's probably how I want to feel. (laughs) I do want to feel like I'm wearing trackies every day, so I probably just would. Okay, nice. Third question. What's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you? That all I talk about is periods. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Vaguely true, but not entirely. Next question. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to working out what I want my life to look like, what I want to do, everything to do with the future, I'd say. Can I just say though, you have a very exciting future ahead of you. (laughs) Thank you. Next question. When was the last time you majorly cringed at yourself? Every time I hear my voice on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Every single time I hear the engineers edit it when I walk into the room afterwards and they start playing it out loud to me, I'm like, immediately stop. (laughs) I know, I literally, I can't, I can't deal with it. So Amica, before we get into the questions that uh, we've been sent in by my audience, I just want to ask you something. Why is it that people think that you won't stop talking about periods? I suppose I did spend a long time talking about periods, especially when I first 
started talking about feminism, it was because I started a campaign called Free Periods, which was trying to ask the government to end period poverty in education by providing free menstrual products in all schools and colleges. Um, So I guess because the government didn't listen for a very long time (laughs) and no one was replying to my emails, I was doing as many interviews um, as I could where I did talk about periods a lot. So I don't blame the people who think that all I know or think about is periods because that is what I did talk about for a while. But I feel like since we were successful in kind of in convincing the government to change their policy back in 2019, I've kind of realised how periods sit in in a much broader struggle for feminism. And there were people who were unable to go to school because periods aren't, weren't seen as a basic human right. That shows just how much, you know, women's bodies have been sidelined and periods as an issue were completely ignored and dismissed from any sort of political conversation. That was my very discreet way of getting you to talk about (laughs) how incredible you are. And I just think it's absolutely phenomenal what you've been able to do. Thank you. Thanks. I really appreciate that. And today we're here to talk all about feminism. I've been recording uh, these episodes over the past few months all about feminism and today we're doing the call-in episode where people have sent in the questions and the first question we've got in here is from Adrienne and she says are you able to explain the patriarchy in an easy way who is involved in the patriarchy and how did it begin I'm not sure that I can fully grasp what it means yet I'm new to feminism and I'm still very much learning I mean I think a word like patriarchy sounds quite heavy but as soon as you learn the meaning in my eyes it just means any sort of social organization or like a structure where men are privileged over anything else so any society where men are dominant or more powerful or kind of treated as superior to everyone else so it's quite simple and I feel like issues like misogyny you know rape culture you know the gender pay gap these are all facets of the patriarchy. Absolutely. The way I like to describe it, I use this quote in my book and there was no source for it. It's one of those internet, silly internet quotes we don't know where it's from. And it was uh, a man in a room full of women is ecstatic and a woman in a room full of men is generally fucking terrified. And I like Mm. to use that expression because a lot of people will say, well, I work in a company where it's all women. Fantastic news for you, but that is an anomaly within a dominant culture where that rarely happens. And so you actually require systemic historical backing for oppression to even exist. A man in a room full of women is extremely comfortable because he knows that there's no threat on his safety. Women do not commit 96% of all violent crime. So of course you're going to feel (laughs) safer in a room full of women. And I think that really highlights it. Yeah, completely agree. Even just the idea of men are the default and that's just the way we are socialized. Something I think that people miss out in conversations around what patriarchy is, is the insinuation that actually it's about men. It's something inherent within them, uh, you know, that teaches them to be or makes them act more powerful or superior or dominant. Actually, it's not about the men, it's about society. And it's about the way that society is structured and how we've all been socialized. You know, regardless of gender, we've been brought up with the idea that a society is socially organized in a hierarchical way with men at the top and men are the default. I mean, you know, the iPhone is designed to fit a man's hand or airbags in cars are like designed to fit the size of a man's body and it's only when you reduce it down to those like 
bare statistics that show you that actually when a child probably pictures a person in their head it's a man when scientists design solutions to problems or conduct investigations they look to men before women and that's literally all patriarchy is there's there's always this like yeah default that we hand over decision making to men it's only been about 15 years since women have actually been able to vocalize their opinions and been able to speak our truth and finally be heard and allowed to think. We're only allowed to have credit cards from like the late 70s. So we weren't <laughs> allowed to start up companies and uh, yeah. make our own income and decide that maybe we don't want to have children. That was seen as our role in life. So a patriarchal society is one that thrives on those structures existing. And I like what you said also about how it's not men by default. That's not who they are. It's the society that we live in. Um, and people make culture. And I think that what's really important about stuff that people like yourself are doing is you're saying, I'm empowered enough to know that there are systems out there that are going to try and fuck up my life and make sure that I don't receive adequate care, like period products, that, that, that my bodily functions are going to be sidelined and not even included and discussed about because it's so taboo. And I'm still going to fucking do something about it because I am a person and I can change this narrative. Yes, it's not men's fault that they were born into their bodies that inhabit this privilege that existed before them. And they do have the power to change it, you know, yeah. like you do, like you are, like we I was, are. I was going to say the same thing, even though um, it's kind of, it's not their fault and they didn't create, I mean, they, someone created the system because <laughs> men, someone out there <laughs> ruined it for all of us. But, um, because it was created to privilege men, it actually has to, the breakdown of the system has to involve men. And that's why I feel like I sometimes find this, the kind of position of feminism and conversations around feminism so upsetting because they're always they always seem to indicate a divide, whether that's a generational divide or a gender divide and or kind of like a global divide between people of different you know, classes or countries. And I think the problem with having a gendered division of feminism means that we forget that actually the most powerful way of breaking down the system is collaborative. I think there's no way that we can actually break down the structure of patriarchy if it's just women talking about feminism. And so often... The view of feminism broadly is about women trying to kind of kind of swap positions or become become dominant instead of men when that's not at all what we're asking for. Actually, the you know, feminist utopia is just better for everyone. You know, it's regardless of gender, it's just about taking away that structure that privileges just men and making it equal. That's all it is, and it really is that simple. And I think if more men understood just how simplistic that idea is and kind of how um, tangible and achievable it can feel, more men would want to call themselves feminists and want to get on board with the idea and it would be more collaborative and less divisive. Right, let's go to a voice note next. This one's from Amy in the UK. Hi, I want to quickly start off by saying that Women Don't Are You Pretty is my Bible and I absolutely worship you both. Um, my question is, how do I feel valid in my feminism as a woman who constantly finds herself moulding her appearance to please the male gaze, even though I identify as queer? It's a constant conflict I find myself in, but I'm terrified to break the mould. Again, love you too. Oh! 
Oh, that God, so I sweet. loved them. Wow, that, that was so nice. Uh, thank you so much, Amy, for the wonderful words. Of course you can still call yourself a bloody feminist. Yeah. We all suffer from the patriarchy and from this programmed, built-in need to be seen and validated by men constantly. Male validation is like a drug. Being desired by men is like a drug. Not only because it feels lovely and tingly inside as you feel like you're suddenly worth something uh, because it's all we've been taught for, from a very young age is to look pretty and to make ourselves look constantly nice while we're doing the things. You know, I'm recording a podcast, but I still made sure that I did my makeup to record an audio. (laughs) So did I. You are not alone in that. I just want to say that. And also you said you're a queer woman. So uh, maybe you're bi, maybe you're still attracted to men. So of course you're going to still want them to fancy you. And second of all, I've got friends who are lesbians who still, first of all, fancy men and still (laughs) love attention from men. What becomes problematic to your self-esteem I'd say is when you start to rely on it so yeah but when it is when it is a drug and no longer something that just maybe makes you feel good every now and then and I compare male validation to a drug because I literally had to go cold turkey on it I had to turn men off on dating apps I had to stop seeking their looks on the street I had to do all of this stuff and it was like weaning myself off of this thing again I identify as bisexual and I'm still attracted to men it's it's a lot clearer in my mind what I want from men now I I completely agree and I also think there's we have to talk more about the fact that no one there's no such thing as a perfect feminist everyone's always feeling guilty and that is also in my opinion the patriarchy at work because even with something like feminism which is us trying to reclaim power and control we still think we're not good enough but we still think we're not doing it right and that is like that is terrible because actually we're trying everyone's trying and you know even the fact that you've sent in a question to that to for me and Florence to answer like that's showing that you care enough to be part of this of this battle so I think the be I mean it's I'm so guilty of it so I'm I can't really preach about it or tell you not to but being self-critical or you know looking for holes in what you're doing is it's just going to slow you down it's just going to make you feel like you're not a good enough feminist when actually there is no such thing as the ideal feminist and also you can't blame yourself for wanting to seek out male attention because that is what we have all been taught that we that's all we're worth that's that's what we've been told so it's actually like you said going cold turkey like it's actually a really like decisive acts that you have to take to step outside of it and I still like I completely agree I still feel like I'm not on the other side I still feel like I'm you know you have good days and you have bad days you have days where you kind of succumb to it even though you feel like technically as a feminist maybe that's not what you should be seeking out that is just what we've been programmed to think like so you I just don't think you can blame yourself Of course not. And I would also recommend, Amy, reading The Beauty Myth. It completely flipped my head on its arse. I don't even know if that's a correct (laughs) expression, but that's exactly how it felt. It flipped, I don't know, it just did something to me. It changed my freaking life. Um, The Beauty Myth taught me all the very insidious ways that we are programmed. And I just think it's learning about how you are influenced without knowing it that helps you become immune to being influenced by bad messaging. And please do not beat yourself up about shit I need to have the answers. Amica and I don't have the fucking answers. We're still fumbling around in the dark trying to learn what not to do and what what's the right thing to say and fucking up all the time and still being controlled by all of this stuff. And also we're empowered enough to know that we don't have to be a victim to this stuff and that we can change our minds about things. Yep, exactly. 
Okay, so now we have Ava on the line and she's from San Diego. Hey! Hi! Hi, Ava, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm amazing. Thank you for having me. Of course. What would you like to ask us? Um, so I want to know how I can educate people, especially men, on feminism without coming off as a raging feminist that turns people away. <laughs> I want to know how I can be effective. Good question. Okay. So I think for men particularly, I think the word itself, feminism, sounds terrifying. And it sounds like that really ridiculous stereotype of loads of women with hairy legs, like trying to trample the men. Me? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, obviously. (laughs) But um, I think that puts off so many men from feeling like they have a place in the conversation. So what I would do is propose the the central kind of tenets of feminism, what it really means, what it's all about. Ask the man if they agree with that. Don't use the word feminism, but when, if they're a decent human being, in my opinion, they say that they agree with those things, e.g. equality of the sexes, then you say, okay, you're a feminist, and that's literally it. And I also think there's so much nuance within the conversation. There's so there, There's difference and disagreement within feminism, and that's the thing that... I feel like we have to hold on to that like there's no universal idea of what feminism is and I think recognizing that and realizing that it's actually quite a complicated topic that can be boiled down to something really simple really dispels it in my experience using an example so if I started this campaign called free periods and I was talking I talked about periods a lot and that was my kind of pathway to talking about feminism and so often I said to boys and men who got really like read and cringed out by the fact that I was even mentioning the word periods to them I would say like why are you embarrassed why don't you want to talk about talk about this because it is just a biological process that you know that we that half the world experiences so why do you think it's embarrassing or cringy or disgusting and again that's the patriarchy at work and that is the need for feminism so I feel like if you use an example and if you say it's, it's actually the patriarchy that's taught you to be embarrassed about periods and made you cringe when as soon as I talked about like period pain or tampons. That kind of makes it real because so often the theoretical, you know, structural side of the conversation with all the complicated vocabulary can really put people off. But when you talk about it in an everyday sense, it becomes yours. Periods is such a good example, Amica, because... I feel like a a good tangent off of that is that the reason men are so repulsed by people who have periods having them is because it's not desirable and our bodies are like taught to be seen as desirable, not functional. So when the literal cycle that creates life is like brought into the function of our bodies and not because we're going to give them a wank with our tits or they're not penetrating us. All of a sudden it's this like vulgar thing. It's it's a natural giving thing that should not be cringed at. It should be fucking celebrated because it is the cycle of life. Every single person is here because of a period. I don't think we say that. We'll talk about that enough. Exactly. So men should be grateful for periods because they wouldn't literally wouldn't be alive without them. So Ava, do you have any examples of when you've tried to confront men with their actions or your opinions on feminism? Yeah, a lot of the time it kind of just leaves me speechless at some points. But like, I'll be with um, my guy friends and like a pretty lady walks by and they're like objectifying her. And I don't know how to, you know say something like she's a person. And I mean, it's, you can acknowledge someone's beauty. Yes. We all do that. But 
um, I guess the objectifying. And then also what you guys were saying about, um, like including men in the conversation, I feel like sometimes that's hard because they feel like the villain in feminism because they kind of are, but how do we make them <laughs> feel better? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly what Floss was saying. Like you have to give them something and you have to give them a connection. And I think often we jump to those extreme examples about um, sexual violence or domestic abuse or violent crime. And then the problem with that is that so many men who haven't done those things and feel like they would never think, okay, then I'm not part of the problem. But actually, when you boil it down to the little things like just objectifying a woman, just <laughs> like objectifying <laughs> a woman or, you know, um, street public street harassment or all of these things that feel more every day, or just even participating in the culture or toxic masculinity, all these things that affect all people in all ways, um, that helps to find that connection because ultimately you need that connection to be part of something and feel like you can do something about it. You have to recognize the problem in yourself. I think that's so important. Um, but is, is there anything else you wanted to ask us on this topic? Um, I think that's it. Thank you so much for your help. Oh, of Thank course. You. Thanks for calling in. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to <laughs> pretend that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> and we agree on some things. But not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Okay. Oh, that was lovely. Okay. Yeah, so nice to have her. On to the next question. This is one from Ella. Okay. Doja Cat came on TV shaking her ass, brackets, which was insane. And my dad was like, this is undoing all these years of feminism. My explanation of why it's not wasn't the best, but I know yours will be. Thank you. Thank you. Kiss emoji, lipstick emoji. <laughs> I didn't think you'd actually read those up. Okay, I think this is such an interesting question. And I think also something I've really battled with myself. I have a, I have a theory behind it, but I, it's, I have to Ooh, caveat that it's completely go, it made up and so very much my opinion. We talk about like different waves of feminism, like first, second, third. I personally don't agree with them. I, I, I don't think they're always the most productive way of talking about feminism. But what I do see is I think the idea of feminism is always evolving and changing. So if you ask like my parents, for example, what is feminism? What is, what, what is it all about? So often, you know, 1917, suffragettes, that comes into the, your mind and like 
green, purple, and yes. white. That's the kind of like archetypal <laughs> feminist, right? And I think obviously that's still true. And obviously all feminists are so glad that we have a vote. Um, so thank you to the suffragettes. But I do think, <laughs> felt like I had to say that. But I do think feminism is changing so quickly right now. And I think more recently we're having conversations, more nuanced conversations about sexuality, about sex work, about um, pornography, about trans inclusivity and gender. And, and I hate to reduce it to generational difference because sometimes I feel like that's really reductive. But I do think that our generation is constantly pushing forward this conversation to make feminism as inclusive and nuanced as possible. And so often people of older generations that's where they trip up and that's where feminism splinters. Yeah. And obviously that's incredibly unproductive and not great for the movement because it means that we have so much infighting within the feminist movement and we have so much difference and disagreement. This conversation really reminded me of my a lot of my experiences with those older generations say, making comments like that. And I wouldn't want to say that your dad isn't a feminist because I think even his recognition of and making that comment is kind of a great thing. that He's like aware. But what I would have said probably is the fact that we're now at a stage of feminism. The conversation is such that if you can be Doja Cat and as incredible as Doja Cat is, and you can see what her dancing and her performance as completely divorced from any sense of patriarchal pressure to you know, impress men to look sexy for men. If you recognise that it's about her own sexuality and her own self, that's when it is actually an act of feminism. I think it's so representative of where we are in conversations around feminism right now. Yes. To explain all of the ways in which a woman shaking her ass on television is empowering, you'd need to you'd need to have like a whole conversation about bodily autonomy. You'd need to have a whole conversation about uh, women reclaiming this stuff. You need to have a whole conversation about how, first of all, black women's bodies have been fetishized. So to see a woman of color on TV doing this kind of stuff and doing it for herself and doing it in a way that is, she's looks so fucking incredible. Yeah. She makes women feel incredible. And also that's the point that she makes women feel good about themselves. And I think Megan The Stallion, her music video to Thought Shit was a response to this kind of thing. Yeah. It was an old guy and she ended up like sewing up a pussy as his lips. It's like Megan The Stallion, Doja Cat, they all know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. They, they are so in control. They look like they're in control when they're shaking their ass on TV. Yeah. But women have also just been entirely stripped of their sexual autonomy uh, sex education rarely involves discussions of actual pleasure. It's just how not to get pregnant. So when we see women being sexual on stage, when we see women talking about how much they love fucking in their rap music, it's, it is it is empowering. It is yeah. because we've been taught not that this stuff doesn't belong in our music, in our lives, and that we can't do that kind of stuff. Your dad's saying that this is undoing all the years of feminism. You could explain to him, like, this is feminism today. I think he probably sees them undoing feminism as he sees it, which is which looks and feels a certain way and is about certain issues. But actually today, feminism is so much more all-encompassing and also nuanced. And I personally, I don't think they are doing it purely for the male gaze and purely for, you know, for men to drool over them, even though they probably are. They're doing it for themselves, mm. right? Um, and that's what feminism is. It's just a byproduct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's unimportant. <laughs> and again, what, what a male-centric thing to assume that it's entirely for them. 
Okay, on to the next question. Here we have a question from Gareth. Here we go. As a guy, I always wonder and have the panic about whether I'm doing the right thing in supporting women and feminism. What advice would you give to guys who want to support the cause? Because at the end of the day, we're all fucking humans. <laughs> why, sh- why should society and our genitals dictate our purpose in life? Wow. Totally agree with you, Gareth. And still, we need to acknowledge that those things very much do exist. It's a bit like when white people, when we say, I'm colorblind, I don't give a fuck about what race you are. Yeah. It, it, it's, as much as you may have that kind of belief, we also need to acknowledge that the structures do exist and that while I'm with you Gareth I am with you on the opinion that we're all fucking humans mate and society should not be judging us by our genitals but they very much do still Mm. and I think that's what you're asking here is how do I support women through all of this and I would say the first thing I would say that just always comes to my mind is questions are not offensive okay I love questions I love when men ask me questions um but also I wouldn't entirely rely on people explaining things that may or may not be quite triggering or just not nice to talk about too so you can always google some stuff there are some excellent resources everydayfeminism.com helped me a lot when I first started learning about anti-racism when I was around 17 years old um started googling some stuff on there it taught me all of this shit that I've been doing for years microaggressions towards people of color that I was just like disgusted to believe I was doing uh, and that required literally no one having to step in and correct me because I was doing this research myself. And so I think those kinds of things are great when it comes to supporting women in feminism and also just uh, p- pulling your bros aside. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, talk to men, talk like talk to the men. And I would say, call yourself a feminist. It sounds like Gareth is a feminist just from texting in, but um use that word because that word has a lot of power and if you tell you know a man who's not a feminist that you are one it's so sickening to think it's true but he'll be more interested in the fact that you are one than a woman is a feminist change the standard exactly um and and call him out and say why aren't you a feminist don't you believe in this and this and talk you know just talk about you know like you i think it's really true what you said floss like call yourself out for past mistakes and say and talk about your learning process talk about the fact that no one really knows what they're doing you're still we're all still learning and figuring out how we're going to get there so talk about the process as well yeah I think that's so important Gaz does sound like a feminist and I'm so excited to have Gareth on the podcast asking this question I got a lot of book reviews from men for my book Women Don't Are You Pretty and they were probably the most fulfilling and the most shocking reviews I've ever received in my life because I didn't think that men would pick up my book, even though the title Women Don't Owe You Pretty is very much aimed at men, the you being Mm. men, women don't owe you pretty. And I think that the book actually benefits men and will change the way men think more than it will change the way women think because a lot of women already know the stuff in my book, but perhaps they haven't been given the language to speak their feelings. Uh, But with men, they were like getting an insight into what it's like to be a woman. And I had men messaging me saying, I've been crying for days. I cannot believe the world has just turned itself upside down. And so I would like to say to my male audience, thanks for being here. And um, I really appreciate you trying and showing up to learn and like taking a back seat to listen. Thank you, Gareth. Okay, we have a voice note here from Yara who uses they, them pronouns. Do you think feminism, how it is right now, is only made for white women? 
and has taken away any space for people of colour? Thank you, Yara. I think a really important question. I want to say a couple of things. I think, firstly, I think we've come a long way in that this feels like a conversation that more people are having about white feminism, about um, the intricacies of the relationship between race and gender, and how, in a lot of ways, conversations around feminism, like, they just have to include race because the experience is obviously so different. The other thing I would say is that I think it can be quite intimidating and simplistic to talk about feminism as one thing. It's not like, you know, there's this absolute feminist utopia and we're just slowly crawling towards it. I think it's far more complicated than that and we're, and everyone's at different stages and all societies are at different stages and all, as individuals we're at different stages too. I don't want to homogenize the movement and say, you know, we're now acknowledging white feminism and we're talking more about misogynoir, which is black women facing a combination of both feminism and racism. So a completely different experience to a white woman's experience of patriarchy. It's a really important and essential element in conversations around what feminism is and what the goals of feminism should be. But I think we're now at the stage where feminists campaigns and movements have to take action to you know go that extra step to acknowledge how racism and feminism intersect because I think we're past the stage of just acknowledging the fact that feminism has been very white for a very long time because also I would say even as a person of color I've been affected by white feminism in so many ways you know even just earlier I said that the suffragettes are like for so many people the original feminist the historic view of what feminism should be and how it can be so incredible but that was an incredibly white movement which was actually very exclusive of um women of color and also of women of lower social classes it was also a very, it was a very yeah. middle class up, you know upper class white movement well of course it was it was white women who got the vote First, wasn't exactly it? <laughs> exactly that yeah. and we don't talk about that enough yeah. so i think yeah. um the thing that really helped me to learn and i'm still really learning about this um but i studied history at university and a lot of what I obviously wanted to study was the history of feminism and I read a really incredible book called Global Feminisms by one of my supervisors called Lucy Delap and it's kind of unpicking this idea of feminism in waves of the first wave and the second wave because that is implicitly a very Eurocentric model of, of white feminism and actually feminism has been around in these kind of little pockets all over the world since the like 17th or 18th century. There were campaigners from, you know, Nigeria who were pushing forward very similar things to what women in America were, lo were looking at or women in the UK. And because we've erased that history in mainstream feminist discourse, we forget that actually this wasn't like a, you know, something that started in the quote unquote West and we transported mm -hmm. externally. This has existed all around the world. The idea that people of all all sexes and genders should be treated equally is not exclusive to any race or any um country or you know like civilization. It's not it's so basic that obviously it's existed around the world for ages. And I think if you look into the history of feminism particularly the global history of feminism that really opened my eyes to that and made me realize that yeah. this isn't this shouldn't be hierarchical this shouldn't be Europe, you know western i hate using that word but it shouldn't be seen like that it should be seen as a global movement 
much more nuanced than the way that we see it right Mm. now. Um, So I would really recommend that book, actually. Yeah, well, Kimberly Crenshaw coined intersectional feminism, the term intersectional feminism, which explains, I feel, what we are moving into now to the point where it's almost non-negotiable, that black women, that women of colour, that disabled women, that trans women, women from marginalised backgrounds, groups, working class women will be included in feminism. And I feel that that's what we're moving into, which gives me a lot of hope. Um, but like you said, th- th- this question again is, do you feel that that feminism is still too white? Yes, of course. And in some places it will be extremely that way. You might find a small subculture where, where black feminists have created a, a beautiful subculture for themselves. There are so many different pockets. So neither of us really want to give like a blanket statement to that question. But what you said again about is so important about the history of the, the suffragettes and how it did not start with them. That's what we're taught. Mm. And I feel like a lot of these things, we will go around thinking that and it's not because we're shitty feminists. It's literally because it's what we're taught. So I think it's always remaining open and new and going through a lot of ego deaths as well. The one thing I would say to fellow white women who listen to this is that just kind of try to park the ego when it comes to the conversations and go into it as if you are a literal baby. As in, I know nothing and I'm so open to learning this shit. On to the next question. This is another one from someone who wishes to remain anonymous. Is there a difference between being a vocal feminist and a feminist activist? I've noticed that you don't refer to yourself as an activist, Floss, and was wondering why that is. So I don't refer to myself as an activist, first of all, because of the weight that that label has. I started to talk about the things I really cared about on social media from a young age, from like 17 onwards. I was held to this standard of like living my life by some kind of morally pristine way. And so, I don't know, something about the title just doesn't sit well for me because of the expectations that come with it. My experience with it has just not been a comfortable one. Amica, what about you? Well, yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, do do you think then that's more of a problem with social media or a problem with social yes. media <laughs> activism and the fact yes. that as soon as you talk yeah. about one thing you're then held up to that standard like I don't know if that's if that is necessarily an entailment of the word activist or if it's the fact that mm. as soon as that label my personal experience yeah with it. Because, I mean my personal experience has been the same so I mean I can I really agree with you that as soon as you're heralded as an activist you're expected to have an opinion on every single vaguely political po- or social issue and have the answers and, you know, be doing all the quote unquote right things. And that is incredibly scary. I think the reason that I've been very keen to use the word activist is because I think I, like, I think it helps to break down that pressure. And I think I grew up with a very ridiculous stereotype of like this image of an activist who you know, is always at protest, like spends every day at a protest, is always kind of doing these really like radical things or chaining themselves to like the M25 or whatever. And like that's someone who has dedicated their whole life to a social cause and they deserve that title. Um, And I think the more that I started out in campaigning and um, with free periods and the more that people put that label on me, I try to reframe it as something that it just means to me, it just means doing something and caring enough to try to try and yes. do something, to try and change the world. Like if you wanna, if you want the world to be better and you wanna do 
one tiny small thing to contribute to making that world better. In my opinion, you're an activist. So you've actually written a book called How to Be an Activist. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so my book is called Make It Happen, colon, How to Be an Activist. And I think actually when I first talked to my publishers about that title... I said I raised exact that same issue that you just mentioned. I said I don't want to sound like I'm the archetypal activist. I've got all the answers. I did this I did this campaign in a certain way. If you want to make change, do exactly what I did because that's not how I view activism at all. And I really hope that people read the book and take from it the fact that being an activist just has to mean doing something. And actually the the central concept of the book is that we've been taught as individuals that we don't have much power, that the only way that we can engage in politics is by voting every five years or by emailing our MP in the hope that they change the thing that we ask them to change. Actually, I think that's a lie. And we're being dismissed if we believe that. We're buying into this myth of our own kind of marginalization as political actors. Actually, each individual has so much more power, particularly young people. Like I started my campaign that eventually changed government policy when I couldn't even vote. I was only 17. So, I mean, that's... (laughs) You're so cool. (laughs) No, I'm just, I mean, I just, that's all activism is. And like, genuinely, I believe if I could do it, anyone really can, because there was nothing like inherently special about me. Like I didn't, I wasn't born believing I was an activist or a change maker or a campaigner. Like they're all such weighty and loaded words. come out the womb with a plan. That would be quite cool. But um, I think that's, again, that's a problem with social media activism, particularly is that when you have that label or when you have that word in your bio, you're suddenly like this whole other class of person that has to have all the answers on everything. And like, I really felt it when, as soon as my campaign was successful, the question I was always asked by journalists or in interviews was, you know, so you're an activist, so what's your next campaign? Are you going to tackle the climate? Are you going to tackle... We look for saviours, I think. We we do, don't we? We look for saviours. We we look for people. It's like, so, Amica George, what are you going to do next? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, I think for me, I think we have to try and reclaim that word activist without it becoming so individualized um, to the point where people who people Mm. feel intimidated and the people who are young activists like us don't feel put off by the pressure that that word brings yes I fucking love that answer and I can't wait to read your book that's the last question today wow I love this (laughs) I know I've enjoyed it so much thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me I wish we could answer more that was amazing Thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions and to the amazing guest expert, Amica George. I really enjoyed chatting with her today. It was such good energy and I haven't spoke in depth, I feel, about patriarchy like that for a while. So I really hope that you get something from this episode today. I'm so sorry that we didn't get to answer all of your questions. There were so many incredible ones. If you want to hear more from Amica, you can follow her and her many amazing projects on Instagram at George. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget I'll be answering even more of your questions on the bonus episodes that are available to subscribers on Apple Podcasts. Not just on feminism though, you can ask me anything. If you want your question answered by me, you can drop me a text or voice note on WhatsApp on plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. And that's it for this mini series on feminism. I've loved exploring this topic and talking about it with you. Feminism is something that basically is the reason for my entire career. It's what charged me up when I was 17 years old. It was this 
big pit of rage that I had in my stomach. I know I've said that so many times, but that's basically how I got to where I am today, was by following that passion and that fire and letting it guide me, allowing it to help me create my art, allowing it to help me write, allowing it to help me make my decisions in life, whether it was dropping out of uni or quitting this job or making this connection with a person because they cared about the same things too. Feminism has guided me probably for the last six years of my life and so talking about it really excites me. Next week, I'll be diving into a brand new topic and a new four-part mini-series all about social media. I can't wait for you to hear these conversations. The first episode is with my friend Leila Saad, the author of Me and White Supremacy. And a massive thank you to the fucking incredible Black Honey who composed the original theme music for my podcast. You can find them on Instagram at BlackHoneyUK and check out their latest album called Written and Directed. To keep yourself updated with all the latest episodes as they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please take the time to rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a review. It really does help people to find us and make sure that the people who need to hear these conversations do. This is a podcast from something else. My producer is Millie Charles, assistant producer is Ella McLeod, executive producer is Carly Mayle, production coordinator is Lily Hambley, and we have additional production from Chris Skinner, and I want to give a special thanks to our engineers, Jay Beale, Josh Gibbs, and Gully Lawrence Tickle.